All right, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Uh, we're continuing in our look at some of the virtues uh, that are to be put on because we are in Christ. Uh, in a sense, let's remember um, not just some of those uh, gospel truths for sanctification, but also the reality that because we're united to Christ, we have the fullness of Christ, and because He is this way, because he has these virtues himself, they are to kind of overflow and uh, take place and be present in our lives. So, anyway, that's our brief little introduction to our scripture this morning. Chapter 3, and of course I forgot my glasses, so now I'm squinty. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, And patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would transform us, your holy, beloved people, by the renewing of our minds. Teach us the truth from your word that we might embrace it by faith, even as we reject falsehood and misunderstandings. By faith, help us to apply the truth so that we may become more and more like Jesus to the praise of your glorious, justifying, and transforming grace. Amen. One of the best books I read in the last year is one by William Smith, who's probably not a very familiar name. Uh, but the name of the book is Loving Well, and the subtitle of the book is Even When You Haven't Been. And I thought, that's the book for me. Because <laughs> I, I know I need to love better. And I know, looking at my life, uh, that there are significant uh, periods there where I was not loved well. And so there are things that I struggle to do uh, precisely because I haven't really experienced some of those things. And if you want to know what some of those are, just ask my wife. I'm sure she can tell you. Um, but there's a quote there that stands out to me. And he says this, Part of living in a fallen world is daily experiencing your closest friends taking you for granted, running roughshod over you, keeping things from you, avoiding you, betraying you. In short, sinning against you. Frankly, it's not a question of whether your friends will fail you today, but when and how they will. Unfortunately, you'll probably return the favor. Sort of a sobering quote. And yet, I know from my experience that that is so true. Because I've had dear friends who have done bad things to me, just as I have had, I've done bad things to dear friends. Paul, I think, would wholeheartedly agree with what William Smith said there. Our big idea this morning as we look at Colossians chapter 3 is that Jesus changes us, uh, sorry, changes how we treat others who sin. Let's start with the idea 
with the reality, with the fact that the community of saints is full of sinners. Paul would obviously affirm Martin Luther's little formula, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, just and sinner. Because that is exactly what we see in this passage. Remember, he has just called these people that you are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. In other words, you are just. You have been justified. You have been brought into the favor of God by the work of Jesus Christ. And so here we see in the, in the larger context of, of this verse, the, the fact that they are just. But they are not yet fully sanctified. They are still prone to sin against God, but also against one another. And so Paul would say, yes, at the same time, sinners, because he mentions about those times when one has a complaint against another. This phrase is more, it's, it's, it's got more to it than just the differences of opinion that it might exist between Christians in a fellowship. Remember, the context here is the church. Okay, uh, This applies as well to our marriages and our families and all of our relationships, but the co- immediate context is life within the church, the community of saints. And uh, there are times that people have complaints, and so this is more than differences of opinion. It, it, it's more than, than saying, I prefer the piano to the organ. We're going to have differences of opinion on those kinds of things. Uh, you know, particular songs, some of you might really love a particular song that we sing in worship, and there's some of you that go, I hate that song. It's not about that, but it can be about what you do with that. When you start to have complaints against each other because you have wronged one another in some way, shape, or form. The idea here is a, a legitimate blame or complaint. Someone did something that was wrong, that was contrary to the law of God, and harmed another member of the body. That's what's in view here. Paul recognizes that they are still sinners, and they're still going to sin against one another. They're still going to hurt one another. The closer the relationship, actually, we find more often someone does something wrong. And that's the, really the point of William Smith's uh, statement there. You know, the person I sin against the most, you know, is my wife. The people I sin against the most are my wife and my kids. So if you think I sin against you a lot, think about them for a moment, okay? <laughs> far more, because I'm in, I'm in far more contact with them, and there's a deeper, deeper level of relationship that I have with them, especially because you know we're married and they're my kids and all of that kind of stuff. I'm going to sin against them more than I will sin against any of you. So the closer that you are to someone, the more you're going to experience that relational sin, the more, because there's more opportunities to harm one another. 
And in their book on relationships, this ugly mess, uh, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp note that since relationships are about being other-centered, the self-centeredness of sin will inevitably subvert God's design. Our sin will come to bear upon the relationships we hold most dear, whether we plan for it or not. It's a reality. And so Paul here is sort of preparing them for the inevitable truth, the inevitable events, so that they respond in a way that brings healing to the community, to the marriage, to the friendship, wherever the, whatever the particular context it might be, because sin happens. So sin happens in the community of chosen, holy and beloved ones called the church. So what are we supposed to do about it? He starts with, bear with one another as God bears with you. Due to their status, remember, chosen, holy, beloved, that's the whole thing. As these things, you are to put on these certain things, and so their status requires that they put on certain traits. Okay? And some of these had to do with the ongoing sin within the community. And so the first one he says, um, with, that we're looking at today anyway, is patience. Which literally would have the idea of a long fuse. It's trans, it's in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it is used numerous times uh, for what we see translated as slow to anger. We saw it in the text that um, was read for us this morning by Dick in uh, Exodus 34. But we also see Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 145, And as it says in Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And what is really significant about each of these passages is, you know, they're all rooted in what God proclaims there in Exodus 34. What is, what's going on, as you remember, if you were paying attention, is that Moses is, uh, wants to see God and God says, you know, I can't let you see me, but I will pass by and I will declare my name to you. And so God declares his name to Moses, his unchanging name. The reality, not not like my name is Steve, but it's an idea of his character, who he really is at his core and his being. And part of what he says that never changes about him is that he is slow to anger. And so all Paul is saying is that we are to be like God in being slow to anger when people sin against us. This word is uh, usually used in this way in the New Testament. We do see a couple of variations. For instance, in in James 5, we are to be patient while we await God to, to keep all of his promises. And part of that idea still is you're not getting angry with God because he's waiting to fulfill his promises. You're not getting, you're not starting to grumble like the people in the wilderness Okay, because you're, you don't have everything that God has promised you yet. We see this as well in 2 Peter chapter 3, where God is patient before bringing judgment because He's wanting us to come to repentance. 
And so Peter reminds them, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, sometimes translated long-suffering, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so God is long-fused in order that we might come to repentance for our sin. He doesn't bring the hammer down right away. He gives us time to repent, to turn away from the things that we are doing wrong. And so what this means is that passively, this is sort of our passive response to what's going on, passively we do not become angry when we're sinned against. Now, that doesn't mean we avoid the sin. It doesn't mean we just kind of gloss over it and pretend it didn't exist. It's not faking it, okay? But the point here initially is that we're not to go on the attack. We're not supposed to, you know, give in like for what has been done to us. We're not to seek to hurt them because they have hurt us. And part of what that means is, you know, we don't gossip about that person. We don't hit that person. Now, most of you probably, you know, once you're over the age of, say, 12, you don't really hit people very often, I imagine, right? Jack, are you hitting somebody? (laughs) I think think Jack has grown past the days when he's hitting people. (laughs) Okay, but you know, Little kids, what do they do? They strike out with words and sometimes with their fists. They push, they shove. And sometimes we never grow out of that. There's no persecution either. There's no unleashing of the inner lawyer that kind of goes after and and, and names every sin that person has committed and seeks to destroy them, you know, instead of restore them. And so that's part of our response, passively being patient or long-suffering, having a long fuse, okay? But there's also this idea, and I think that we need to know ourselves. We also need to recognize when we don't have a long fuse. Are there patterns that we need to recognize? You know, um, yesterday I fought the Moen, and the Moen almost won. I I had to fight to fix, you know, our shower. And actually, I started on Friday, and I didn't finish until yesterday afternoon. Gratefully, the water was not off the entire time. But that was sort of, I felt the the pressure of a deadline. Want to know when I have a short fuse? When I get a deadline. Okay? So I'm getting all frazzled because, you know, I know my wife, my beloved, she needs water. I can't spend all day doing this, especially when now I've got to travel across town to pick up the part that I dropped between the walls. (laughs) I did not have a long fuse late yesterday morning. You know, that's one of the things I know about myself. Sometimes there's particular sins you have no tolerance for. And perhaps it's because of someone has profoundly hurt you in that way in the past and, and you really haven't dealt with that. And so every time that particular sin comes up, man, you are quick. You're on the, you're on the quick draw on that thing. There's no long fuse where that sin is concerned. Know yourself so that you can begin to bring that to Jesus. Are there certain stressors in your life like deadlines to me that create an, uh, an environment in which you know that you're going to be quick to respond to others in a negative way. The second thing that he says to them is bearing with one another. 
This easily, you know, it's just to endure, it's to tolerate one another, it's to restrain from action, in a sense. And again, this is a, a, a basically passive response to having been wronged by refusing to escalate the problem that exists. In other words, you're not going to toss some more gasoline on the fire, you know. And again, this is putting the inner lawyer away, but it's more than that. If you're bearing with somebody, you're also not running away from them or avoiding them. Okay, so there's not attacking, but there's also not avoiding. If you're bearing with the person, you're staying in relationship with them in the midst of that sin and seeking to work through it and bring resolution to the problem as opposed to just taking your bag and going home. That's why a lot of divorces take place. Sometimes there's no repentance. And sometimes it's just no bearing. That's why church splits happen. Either there's no repentance or there's no bearing with the sin of others. This recognizes the fact that people do not change right away. That they may continue in that sin for years. Think about yourself. Aren't there sins that you, you spent years struggling with? Well, guess what? That means that there's other people around you that have put up with you for years while you've struggled with that sin. And it's funny sometimes when people are really in trouble in a marriage, inevitably someone will say, but they don't change. And I'm like, it takes time to change. Remember how long it takes you to change, and now you're expecting instantaneous, miraculous change for God to just zip in and fix their sin problem so that you don't have to deal with it anymore? God says, bear. Just like I bear with your sin, you are to bear with their sin. We see that this is why Jesus says, when Peter comes to him. And Peter thought he was doing great because he comes up. How often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times. Okay, now in the context, that was more gracious than the Pharisees. Okay, so Peter thinks that he's got this thing nailed down. Seven times. Not three, seven. And Jesus says, 70 times seven. This is not three strikes, you're out. This is not, you've got one month to change, honey, or or I'm packing my bags and leaving. This is bearing through difficulty. As long, I'll put my little caveat out in case anyone misunderstands me, as long as there is not uh, abuse that's going on, okay? There There are reasons that someone should pack their bags. I'm not talking about those instances, okay? I don't care how many times he forgets to put the toilet seat down. I don't care how many times she doesn't put the cap on the toothpaste. Or whatever it is that really gets your goat in your marriage. Or whatever gets your goat within this congregation. We bear. What happens is often that pride makes that response more difficult. We forget how much God bears with us. 
And so we begin to point the finger. But notice how these virtues and these vices are connected. We can't ultimately isolate them from one another because without humility, you're not going to be long-fused. You're not going to be bearing with one another. When you're suffering from pride, you're going to be quick to point out. You're going to be quick to attack. You're going to be quick to run away because they don't deserve your presence. Do you understand how these things are connected? Anyway, in our passive response to sin, we are not to attack or avoid the other sinner. Let's go to our active response. Forgive one another as God forgave you. So what we see here is that the problem is not swept under the rug. It is not ignored, you know, like something, uh, you know, we might want to do. Just pretend it didn't exist, didn't happen. That's not what's going on. We're not living, not trying to, I'm not encouraging you to live in denial of what just happened in a particular instance. Ann Landers, the great American common sense person, said in one of her columns, Hanging on to resentment is letting someone you despise live rent-free in your head. So, you know, when you don't deal with it and you let it fester, you're letting someone live rent-free in your head and your heart, and you become bitter and hard. That's not what we want. That's not what Paul is bringing them to, because he says, forgiving each other. And that word that is used there for forgiving has its root in the word grace. Gracing one another, showing them favor, showing them kindness. In other words, we are to pardon one another. And this touches on that reality that we often don't think about, um, the economic parallels, so to speak, that, that sin incurs a debt that because there has been damage that has been done against another person. Some of you know this all too well, so to speak. Um, for instance, a car accident. Around here in Tucson, there's lots of people who like to run red lights and stop signs. Um, I don't know how I've survived three years going through the intersection of, uh, of Shannon and McGee and, and uh, Cortero over there. There's always someone blasting through where they're not supposed to be. But if someone does blast through and hit your car, guess what? They've incurred debt. They're responsible for damaging your vehicle and hopefully not for you, damaging you. Okay? And they're supposed to pay that off. And usually what happens is their insurance pays it off. But you get compensation because you have been wronged. Okay? We understand that, right? Well, what forgiveness is is saying, you know what? You don't have to pay me back. I will absorb the loss. I will get this fixed on my own. That's what pardon is. That's what we see in the parable of the unmerciful servant. The first servant owed 10,000 talents. Whole lot of money. Okay? More than any of us makes in a year. He owes a lot of money. The king pardoned him. He asked for mercy, and the king initially shows him mercy. He says, I will, in a sense, he says, I will take the loss. You do not have to pay back what you owe me. That's what forgiveness is. It's letting somebody off the hook for the wrongs that they have done to you. We're able to do this precisely, as Paul says, because as the Lord has forgiven you, 
This is the only way and the only reason we can do this. Because we ourselves have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now free and able and should be willing to forgive those who sin against us. We see Paul talking about this already in Colossians. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he talks about God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption there is described as pardon for sin because the price has been paid not by you, but by Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Again, that idea of debt. We had debt before God. It's been canceled with with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That IOU has been nailed to the cross. Born by Jesus, we don't owe it anymore. And so, because we have been pardoned of our own debt before God due to our sin, Paul says, now we can forgive others for their debt against us. And so, just as our, our forgiveness is the result of Christ's death upon the cross, so is it to be theirs. Remember, it's, it's all of our sin has been paid in full, as we sang, by His work on the cross, and we're supposed to live like it's been paid in full. We've talked about this before, living in light of your justification, live as someone who has been pardoned instead of living under the fear and tyranny of guilt and condemnation. We remember when we sin that Christ has paid this and therefore we can go to Him and be forgiven and enjoy peace in our relationship with God. That's how we're supposed to live, but we're also supposed to live that way with one another. Because I recognize that, for instance, if Alex sins against me, okay, which I can never remember Alex sinning against me. Maybe I need to get to know Alex better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sharon would say, yeah. <laughs> okay, but pretend for a moment that Alex sins against me. Okay? I need to remember that Alex is a justified man. Meaning, his sin has been paid in full on the cross of our Lord, and who am I to continue to hold that against him? Yeah, he also sinned against me, not just God, but you know what? His sin against God is far greater than his sin against me. That's not all. Jesus, in explaining that whole 70 times 7 thing, tells the story of the unmerciful servant, and we already mentioned him, and how he owed 10,000 talents, okay? This humongous debt. And Jesus continues the story because he then goes from the presence of king rejoicing over the fact that he's been forgiven an insurmountable debt, and there's someone who owes him a couple of bucks. A couple denarii. It's a couple of bucks. And what does he do? He doesn't say, hey man, you know that, that 50 you owe me? It's all right. He takes him by the throat. Give me my money. This man did not understand grace. He did not understand what had just happened to him in the presence of the king. And we really need to understand what has happened to us in the presence of the king. That my own debt, which is far greater than what Alex has done to me, has been paid in full 
by Jesus Christ. And so I don't have to hold that against Alex. Peanuts. Pennies on the dollar is what he has done to me compared to what I have done to God. And that's Jesus' whole point in the parable of the unmerciful servant. To walk in the reality of the greatness of pardon, of justification, so that in our sanctification, we are bearing with one another, we are patient with others, and we're forgiving towards others. It includes at the very end this stark warning that we also see at the end, right after the Lord's Prayer, which we say every week, we don't say this part of it, but Jesus also has the same warning that those who do not forgive have not been forgiven. There's a stark warning for us that refusal to forgive indicates that God's wrath really still does rest upon you. You take that seriously, brothers and sisters. It speaks to the condition of our hearts if we really hold on to a grudge. That we haven't really grasped, I think, grace. We're still living by works. We're still basing our acceptance of other human beings upon whether or not they do the right thing all the time. Which they won't. We need to remember that this chosen, holy, and beloved person's sins have been removed by Jesus. And so when we struggle with forgiving others, which is going to happen, we need to return to the cross. We need to meditate upon the cross and what it did. How it removes our guilt. How it removes our condemnation. How it is God's propitiation. How it is a sign of His love for us. We need to go. We need to sit. We need to think about that for a while so that our hearts are humbled. So, you know, instead of the the hard sun-baked ground outside, water of grace falls upon and it's soft and pliable and able to forgive. That's why Jonathan Edwards says, consider frequently your own failings. Okay, And it's within this similar context. It's not just so that you feel bad about yourself. He's not trying to teach a worm theology, you know, like we talked about last week, a despising of self. But consider frequently your own failings by which you have given both God and man occasion to be displeased with you. And then you'll begin to show mercy to others. Let's talk for a second about the implications here beyond the covenant of grace, the community of grace and the church. When unbelievers sin, we can also give them a taste of grace through Christ. Okay, even though we don't look at them and say, you know, like Alex, oh, you know, he's 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 chosen, he's beloved, he he's he's holy. Even though we can't say that about them at that point, anyway, we can also say, I know I have sinned more grievously than this person has, and I want them to taste a bit of grace from me, that they might seek grace from Jesus Christ. And what this happens, I believe, is this can open the door for the gospel. Because we can say to these people, it is because Christ has forgiven me my many and worse sins that I forgive you of yours against me. So we're not to, to, even though this is in the context of the church, we're not to say, the only people I need to forgive are Christians. 
we are also to forgive those outside. Because that refusing to do that can also harden our hearts. So what Paul wants them to know is that we can now treat those who sin against us the same way that God has treated us. He patiently dealt with our sin, waiting for us to come to repentance, didn't he? He waited until we came to faith, didn't he? He bears with us now, even though we continue to struggle with many sins. And if you don't know what they are, ask your spouse if you have one. Or ask your children. I don't want to know. I know what they are. More than that, He graciously forgives us because of the death of His Son, Jesus. And it's because we have been filled in Christ, as Paul said earlier, that we have the spiritual resources to grow in patience, to bear with others, and to forgive them when they sin against us. The alternative to this is ultimately a church that is at one another's throats, just like the unmerciful servant, until it dies. And so, while I don't see that as a problem here, it's always a potential problem. So let us heed the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that I don't see uh, this problem really uh, here. And yet I know that because we are sinners, it could flare up at any moment. That there's always a danger of bitterness and resentment to give rise to destruction in a congregation. Or even, if not that, the avoidance of one another and just the kind of moving on somewhere else. And all of these are failures ultimately to believe the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. That He is enough and what He has done is enough to heal the fractures in our families, in our church. So Father, help us to grow in a greater understanding and experience of this. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.